Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my regular co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, retired Navy Captain and Intel Officer, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. How are you? Hey, Ward. Happy Thanksgiving. It's almost Thanksgiving, we the Thanksgiving week, and this is a weird time to do the podcast, although we really have deviated from our regular Wednesday at 1500 schedule in recent months but uh yeah we, we, we've become semper gumby yeah depending we'll on you know when we can get our guests and uh the best time for them and us and yeah we just make it work so. we, that's us can do <laughs> make it work semper paratus like our coast guard friends um good weekend uh we had the commissioning of the sioux city here in the yard um that was a very cool i did not attend but i, I watched it on live stream yeah, we and, walked by the, the ship on Friday. Oh, yeah, well, you and I walked by the ship cool. on Friday. Yeah. And uh, I did meet uh, Senator Ernst on the sideline of the Navy game. She was one of the keynote speakers because it's from Iowa, right? Sioux yep. City. There was yep. a huge contingent at the football game of people from Sioux City. And um, they were very enthusiastic in Navy One, which is fantastic. An otherwise uh, questionable season. Um, but uh, on the last podcast, I, I mentioned that this was the only commissioning that has ever happened um in the yard i think that's technically true but i also understand in 93 they commissioned a ship during the clinton administration that ultimately wound up as a philippine asset um, oh. so i don't think that one counts um so that's interesting yeah so uh yeah lcs 11 uss sioux city uh was we have a uh a uh, little homage to the ship uh, in the November issue of Proceedings, and we had that framed, and uh, our CEO, uh, Admiral Daly, presented that to the commanding officer, prospective commanding officer, uh, on, on a, an event on Friday night. And uh, that's something we're going to start doing uh, with every new ship that joins the, the fleet as it's commissioned. We will have uh, uh, something in Proceedings welcoming that ship to uh, the fleet, and then we'll, um, you know, present something uh, to uh, to the officers and crew of the ship, uh, and Coast Guard ships as well. We plan to do so. This is kind of a, a new thing that's, uh, you know, that was a CEO initiative, and uh, and I think you know we're we're the staff is quite excited about it. And Jim Dolbo down in the press, uh, who writes a whole bunch of stuff for proceedings as well, is the uh, the guy on the staff who stepped forward and said, "Yeah, I'm a commissioning junkie. Happy to do this." So look for those, uh, you know, commissioning news coming up in uh, uh, in the pages of proceedings over the coming months. And since Friday is Black Friday, um, we just want to start to uh, pitch Christmas wish list ideas. Um, so you mentioned Jim Dobo from the press. Um, remember, we've talked about uh, Dead Reckoning, which is our uh, graphic novel imprint. So for anyone not i would say for the youngsters in, on your 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 pr present list um graphic novels are a great gift but for anyone you know graphic novels are not comic books they're graphic novels so for any military aficionado naval expert in your circle this is a great gift not to mention some of our big titles this year um including uh, learning war by Trent Hone, who, you know, this is the book that the CNO has been uh, talking up all all fall long. Um, it's his number one on his reading list. And, and we had Trent on the, on the podcast we a couple months ago. We had Trent on the podcast. Yeah. We just saw him in person at uh, uh, our, uh, what was it that we did? 
That wasn't the annual meeting. Was that the annual meeting that we saw Trent? No, we saw him at the um, award ceremony for. Oh the, yeah, the, uh, the history the CNO uh, essay history contest. Essay contest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So the end of October. Trent's right. a hot property, um, you know, and uh, you know. So if you haven't read Learning War, um, you you need to uh, to get that one out there. And for the the naval enthusiast on your list and and the member of the Naval Institute um, on your list, it's a it's a must read. So. Uh, and check out the catalog. It's you know the, the the press team does a great holiday catalog every year. I'm sure you've received it if you're a member. If you're not a member, it's a good reason to join. And I'm sure the membership team will send you a catalog, uh, uh, Moiskoshi. Um, so uh, and why not give the gift of membership? as a, a Christmas present uh, or a holiday present. There you go. If you are a member, make a member. Right. And that, that's something give, that uh, give a would, gift would membership. Give all year long. People would right. think of you um, as they're getting their Proceedings Magazine or access to the digital on a daily basis. That's right. right? That's right. I'll tell one more uh, Naval Institute Press uh, gift idea for, uh, for the holidays, and that is the book by our staff member, Dennis Clift, uh, who is uh, – Professor Emeritus, uh, he's, um, he's a national treasure. He's a national treasure. And Dennis Clift, who served as Deputy National Security Advisor, was on the White House teams of numerous administrations, Republican and Democrat, because he was so competent. Uh, Dennis has written a book called The Bronze Frog, which is a novel. Uh, it takes place, uh, you know, current day Navy. Uh, Navy SEAL is the is the um, lead character in the in the book. It has been very well, uh, highly acclaimed by the uh, Kirkus and Publishers Weekly. Publishers Weekly right said basically reviews. read this book, buy yep. this book, read this book. So the Bronze Frog by Dennis Clift, and if you're a Naval Institute member, you get a huge discount uh, on that book. So, all right, um, one more thing I'll I'll uh, point to our readers is coming up just after the Thanksgiving holiday, on the fifth of December. Every year in uh, early December, we do this thing called Defense Forum Washington. Uh, so 5 December, downtown D.C. at the Knight Conference Center at the Museum. Uh, and this year, the title or the, the topic of conversation is the return of great power competition. What are the keys to maintaining competitive advantage? Some of the featured speakers are Honorable Ellen Lord, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics. Admiral Chris, Ogre- Chris Grady, Commander of U.S. Fleet Forces. Veronica Daigle, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, Representative Rob Whitman, and Representative Joe Courtney, Republican and Democrat, uh, members of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, so a, a great audience, a great group of speakers. Uh, it's free to the public. It's free to our members. Come and listen. Uh, the, you know, always good Q&A. It's called Defense Forum Washington, 5 December at the Museum in Washington, D.C. Again, it's free. It starts out. Uh, in the morning, I think it's at uh, 8.30 in the morning. You can learn more on our website. Uh, just go to www.usni.org and then go under conferences and you'll, you'll see a link to uh, Defense Forum Washington. Okay, uh, we're uh, getting some uh, folks on Facebook Live from speaking of, uh, of international. From hello to Garev in India and love in the Philippines. So this is really exciting that we have folks awesome. from all over the world on our Facebook Live feed. Um, so, uh, many times on the show and in the magazine, we're talking about this thing that's known as peer conflict and peer conflict. It's one of two nations, Russia or China. And in recent weeks, including last week, we had a great discussion about China and we're going to continue that this week. 
All right, so going to our guest today, we've got uh, on the line from the Marine Corps University down in uh, Quantico, Virginia, we've got Brigadier General William J. Bowers and Dr. Christopher D. Young. They are the authors of an article in the November issue of Proceedings called China Has Learned the Value of Amphibious Operations. Uh, General Bowers and uh, Dr. Young, welcome to the Proceedings podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you, gentlemen. How are things down in, uh, in Quantico today? Things are great down in Quantico. We've, uh, we've got the students that are all working hard. Um, you know, they're wrapping up the first semester. It's been a challenge for them. It's a really exciting time to be a student here at Marine Corps University. It's kind of one of those periods, not unlike the interwar periods back in the 30s, you know, what you were talking about, the new book, Learning War by Trent Hone. I think we're in that type of era now, where the field is open to new ideas, we're seeing looming threats on the horizon, and the students are really challenging themselves to, uh, to think and write about this and getting their minds around the challenges facing our country. Sir, for uh, our, our listeners who have not been to the Marine Corps University, what's the size of the student body and what are the, the, the programs that you offer there at MCU? Okay, that's a, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Uh, the Marine Corps University comprises six schools and four separate directorates that I'll walk through uh, real quickly for you, and then I'll talk about the, uh, the size of the student body. So I'm going to start uh, with uh, the most junior schools. I'll start at the bottom. Not, not the bottom, but start for our enlisted Marines. The first is the college of enlisted military education. And the College of Enlisted Military Education encompasses six academies that are spread across the Marine Corps at all our major bases and stations. And the College of Enlisted Military Education gets in excess of 11,000 students a year. Wow. Ranging from sergeants for a five-week course to staff sergeants for a seven-week resident course and gunnery sergeants for a seven-week resident course. That's the College of Enlisted Milita Military Education. We have the Expeditionary Warfare School, which is located here aboard Quantico, and that encompasses about 250 captains for Army, Army Air Force and Marines and Navy lieutenants. We have about 200 Marines. We have about 20 international students and 30 students from Army, Navy, and Air Force. Uh, total student population is about 250, though, and that's the Expeditionary Warfare School. So before you leave uh, EWS, General, just to remind the audience uh, that the, the Naval Institute does the sponsored student program with the Expeditionary Warfare School. Um, General Gregson and General Allen sponsor uh, the, each class uh, if they want to accept the gift of student membership, and we always have a huge take rate upwards of 95% of the, any given class accepts the gift. And then at the end of the year, we sponsor the, the Lejeune Award, which is a writing award uh, where the winner is published in uh, a subsequent issue of proceedings. So we have a really tight relationship with EWS. Yes, sir. No, we appreciate it. And, you know, I'm really glad that you brought up the international student uh, element of Marine Corps University. We have officers from 41 countries represented here in our student body at Marine Corps University. 
Uh, this year, I believe we have 97 officers from 41 countries. Just amazing convening power here at the, uh, at the university. So uh, moving on from EWS, uh, next is the Command and Staff College. That is about 200 officers, and they are at the field grade level. We also have some Department of State representatives there. We have international students. And of course, it's a full joint school. About 100 of the 200 students at Command and Staff are Marines. So more than half of the students at Marine Corps Command and Staff College are not actually Marine Corps majors. They are Army, Navy, Air Force, international officers, State Department, uh, CIA, or you know, Homeland Security, or other agencies uh, that are here studying with us. Now, that's, uh, that's the Command and Staff College. Uh, I'm sorry, not CIA, but the uh, but Department of State. For next, we have the School of Advanced Warfighting, and that is 26 students. And these are uh, field grade officers, but they are in an advanced planning school where they will actually get an additional MOS of being a Marine Air Ground Task Force planner when they graduate, and then they will go to high-impact billets on the staffs of three-star and four-star commanders. Next, we have the Marine Corps War College, and this is a top-level top school. These are lieutenant colonels or commanders who have successfully completed command. We have 29 students, uh, less than half our Marines, so our other services, allies and partners, and other agencies are uh, well represented in the Marine Corps War College. We also have the College of Distance Education. And the College of Distance Education and Learning uh, has all of those students from enlisted education who are sergeants, staff sergeants, and gunnery sergeants, to captains who are taking a blended or a seminar version of EWS or command and staff. And the College of Distance Education has blended seminar programs at our major uh, stations and bases, and also seminar programs basically across the Marine Corps. The, the net total of this vast MCU enterprise is approximately 16,300 students will sit in our classrooms a year to include close to 100 officers representing 41 countries. We also have the National Museum of the Marine Corps, which is down here at Quantico, and highly encourage uh, anyone to come visit if they're ever in the D.C. area. It is truly a national treasure. We get close to half a million visitors a year at the National Museum of the Marine Corps. We have a Lejeune Leadership Institute that is responsible for running courses uh, related to leadership, everyone from senior commanders to developing coursework for ethics and decision-making. We have a history division here at Marine Corps University that examines Marine Corps history. And we have a Center for Advanced Operational Culture and Learning, which basically consists of Marines and civilian academics who will travel around to the Marine Corps and provide units cultural training uh, to help them before they go on deployments in support of real-world operational deployments. So Marine Corps University is a vast enterprise with reach across the Marine Corps. That's impressive. 
All right. Well, th- thanks for uh, explaining that to us, uh, sir. And uh, let's move on to the article now. So uh, on page 2425, the opening spread in the November issue of Proceedings and the, the lead in to this article, uh, which is titled China Has Learned the Value of Amphibious Operations. Uh, it says, unable to project power across the Taiwan Strait in 1949 to pursue the retreating nationalist forces the Chinese lost an important strategic opportunity. So let's start with that. Well, uh, you want me to set the stage for that? This is uh, Dr. Young. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, so the Chinese were involved in the Civil War with the uh, nationalists uh, following the Second World War. Uh, uh, as, as we all know from our history, uh, 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 George Marshall came over to try and broker a peace, uh, was unable to do so, and so the nationalists and the communists engaged in a Civil War, which ultimately ended up in the nationalist defeat. So the communists essentially drove the nationalists uh, cross over to the Taiwan Strait. By the by, nineteen the end of nineteen forty eight, the nationalists were suffering huge casualties, millions, uh, at least one million uh, uh, dead, wounded, or missing in action by uh, by the end of nineteen forty eight, and and Shang by. Uh, the spring, uh, summer of 1949, had essentially fled over to the islands of Taiwan, uh, one of the one of the provinces of, of China, and so the nationalists uh, had essentially fled and were, were waiting for the the final battle. Um, the communists um, essentially then had to think through how to get across to the Taiwan Strait uh, because there are a number of pressing imperatives to make sure that that was that was settled. The first imperative was, it was there was a national security imperative. If the nationalists remained uh, on Taiwan, they had the ability to interdict Chinese shipping, which the, the nationalists ended up doing uh, in 1949, 1950, uh, uh, par- uh, imperiling uh, the merchant shipping in China. Uh, they were all the, the nationalist air force was also launching raids against Nanjing Shanghai, and Fujian. And in addition, there was a larger grand strategic problem. That is, the, the communists correctly noted that, that if the nationalists were on uh, Taiwan, uh, the United States would most likely use it as a staging base, have a military presence, and then utilize Taiwan as part of a, a larger containment strategy uh, ranging from Japan to Taiwan to the Philippines, which they correctly assessed. And so there was a, a large imperative, a pressing imperative for the, nat- for the communists to, f- to settle it. And so by the end of 1949, Mao had directed uh, General Su Yu, the, the acting commander of the Third Field Army, to, uh, to start planning the, the final assault of, of Taiwan. And that's where, that's where we, have, we find ourselves at uh, the end of 1949, the beginning of 1950. The, uh, the, need, the need to think through, conduct a large-scale amphibious assault to settle the civil war at last. So at the beginning of the article, uh, you quote uh, Secretary Gates as saying, looking ahead, I do not think it's proper to ask whether large-scale amphibious assault landings along the lines of Incheon are feasible because of things like hypersonics and, and other Chinese capabilities. I just finished reading the New Hampton Sides book. I don't know if you guys have read it, called On Desperate Ground. Um, and uh, my review will be in a subsequent issue of proceedings. Is that December or, or uh, January, do we think? January. January, okay. Um, fantastic book, um, and uh, it opened my eyes to some of the elements of MacArthur and uh, 
uh, you know, General Almond and General Smith and, and all of that issue and, and uh, uh, just how, how desperate that, uh, that struggle was to get back to Hamhung and, and then out of the country. But um, what do we think in terms of amphibious capability and the U.S. sort of punting on that. So I, I had the chance to work on the V-22 program for three years when I retired from the Navy. That was my first job out of the Navy. And the thesis that Marine, the Marine, Big Marine was putting out was the, the amphibious operations no longer is thinking in terms of a beachhead. And we're going to go inland to where the enemy is. And that's why the V-22 exists as a assault support aircraft. So... Uh, what are we thinking in terms of our capability, not to mention the Chinese rising capability with respect to amphibious warfare? Yeah, no, thanks. That's uh, Thank you for the question. So uh, the reason we opened the article with a quote from Secretary Gates is because it seems that in this country we always seem to get in the well, – we always fall into the habit of having to justify why we need to – uh, maintain such expensive capabilities and you know we look at modern weaponry we look at advances in technology and then someone asks well are modern amphibious offensive amphibious operations are they still feasible and if you look at our responsibilities as a great power as you look at what we bring uh, to the international system you know the rules-based international order our network of allies and partners, you look at the maritime nature of the globe, you realize that offensive amphibious operations are part of what it takes to be a great power. And the question really needs to be how do we adapt them to a new era, not whether we need them or not. And Dr. Young and I were having a discussion, uh, boy, more than a year ago, about we seem to fall into this trap of having to justify why we need it. And then, you know, Dr. Young said, well, you know, China is actually developing amphibious capabilities. At the same time, you know, we seem to be asking, well, how would we do this? Do we really need to maintain this? Or China is realizing that they need offensive amphibious capabilities to accomplish their long-term strategic objectives. And then we started peeling the onion back. Why is China developing these capabilities? And, you know, the answer we came up with was some very hard lessons that they learned from the Civil War in 1949. So China, as we say in the article, is, you know, by reports, uh, tripling their Marine Corps to conduct offensive, out-of-area amphibious operations. Yeah, as, yeah, I mean, uh, let me just Go let ahead. me jump in here for a second. I wanted to point out that uh, when we had a conversation about this article, uh, the draft that you had submitted with the editorial board uh, a few months ago, uh, the conversation it was a great discussion. And one of the things that we, not just the staff but also the editorial board, liked about this article is that you know the United States has a Marine Corps, uh, and the you know the U.S. Marine Corps was. You know, central to the ability to defeat the Japanese in World War II, and then just a few years after that was central to the ability to project power in the Korean Peninsula into Incheon. And despite those two incredible successes of U.S. amphibious capability, 
you know, here we are 40 or 50 years later, and, and the U.S. is constantly under, as you just said, under this pressure. Well, do we really need a Marine Corps? Do we need, really need this amphibious capability? Is this really essential in, in, in today's world? By contrast, uh, China, you know, didn't have that capability, did not have that, that forcible entry capability. And at the end of its uh, civil war, they, they couldn't end their civil war, right? The, the, the nationalists were able to flee to Taiwan, where they still have a bastion of uh, security and safety. Uh, and so there's been this, the, the question of the, uh, the legitimacy of the Beijing government versus the uh, free democratic government in Taiwan or Taipei, you know, has, has continued to plague them. So they learned from the, the mistake of not having or the lack of a, of a capability, whereas we had this incredible capability, used it, uh, you know, to win two wars, and now we've questioned whether we need it in the future. And the Chinese are like, oh, no, 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 we, we, we didn't have it when we needed it, and now we will have this capability in the future. We are going to invest in it. We're building it. We're building it up. We're building amphibs as fast as we can. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's really interesting that the country that, you know, had such great success with the amphibious operations is questioning the, you know, the need for it, whereas the country that had, uh, that, that did not have that capability uh, has learned from that, you know, lack. I, I want to bring up also the, the fact that um, uh, the term great, return to great power competition um, if you un- if you unpack what that actually means, um, great power competition doesn't necessarily, although we can enter into a debate about what what that entails for the future, but that doesn't necessarily imply a repeat of the Second World War. So, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative, right, which I know you guys have had discussed before in previous podcasts. Um, what does China's global interest particularly things like the Belt and Road Initiative, its global interest, how does that then relate to China's interest in uh, its military, in its Marine Corps, in its Navy? What kinds of missions would China want to conduct in order to support its larger foreign policy interests, particularly the Belt and Road Initiative? And I would argue that even if if we set aside the possibility that the United States and China will be in some sort of large-scale global conflict, and we can talk about whether that whether that will happen or not. But let's set that argument aside for a second. Let's talk about China's Belt and Road Initiative, its, its, uh, its approach to expanding its global influence, um, in which it is investing huge sums of, of capital uh, and investment in different parts of the world to try and spread its ability to, to, uh, to uh, economically support itself. There are going to be security implications for that Belt and Road Initiative, and, that, and hence, China will be thinking about developing uh, amphibious capability, expeditionary capability to support those missions. Uh, huge investments in Central Asia, South Asia are ultimately going to require that you protect those investments, and that could, and I would argue will, have military implications, and an amphibious force that's going to uh, meet those missions is going to be part of it. So if you set aside even the argument that that China and the United States will be in this competition short of a large-scale global conflict. China is thinking ahead, and they're saying, we need these capabilities to support our long-term global interests, even if that doesn't necessarily lead to a conflict with the United States. Yeah, no, hey, 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 thank you, Chris. Hey, can I add one more uh, note? 
to what Dr. Young had just said. Of course. And I'm going to I'm going to give another pl- uh, a plug for another book that the Naval Institute Press has recently put out, and it's uh, Captain Wayne Hughes and Admiral Griner's third edition of Fleet Tactics. Um, you read this book, and you know Wayne Hughes and, and Admiral Griner just really lay out why operations in the littoral environment. Contested operations in the littoral environment are the future of naval expeditionary forces. And it's going to require an integrated, fully integrated, Navy-Marine Corps team, enabling joint partners, enabling allies and partners to succeed in this era of great power competition. They not only talk about what operations in the future littoral environment are going to look like, they talk about information operations. They talk about the importance of technology becoming part of the mainstream and for all officers and leaders to fully understand the impact of technology on weapon systems and how that will lead to new tactics and new concepts of operation. Everything that uh, I read in Wayne Hughes's and Admiral Griner's Fleet Tactics supports that. Naval expeditionary operations, you know, at-sea operations, amphibious forces are definitely part of our future and something we need to focus on. So are you satisfied, General, that the program of record supports that uh, requirement? Because I was uh, uh, lecturing uh, down in uh, New Bern a couple of months ago, and and they made a a point of saying that the Navy has not built enough amphibs in spite of the uh, USS America class and all the other sort of Gucci things that we put on the streets or on the wall, on the waves, I guess. Um, uh, is the program of record with respect to the LVT-7 follow-up, V-22, and um, also with the amphibs that we're building uh, in keeping with what you want in terms of this comprehensive uh, capability? You know, sir, that's beyond my area of expertise. I know that the Marine Corps is working very hard on this. I know we're uh, working with the Navy very closely, but honestly, sir, that that's beyond my uh, my expertise. I don't know. Okay, don't know sen- good answer, answer, Senator. Uh, very, very very much appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I just don't know. Okay, hey, uh, sir, you know, thanks for the shout out for the book uh, Fleet Tactics by Wayne Hughes. I will I will correct you on the pronunciation of his co-author's uh, name. It's Bob Gearier. Uh, Rear Admiral retired Bob Guerrier, but yeah, that's a good point. And we've we've been working with uh, you know Major General Kaufman, uh, Marine Corps, who's now N95 Expeditionary Warfare in the on the Navy staff, uh, and we're going to have the first ever in in the April issue of proceedings. We're going to theme that issue around expeditionary warfare. So, the idea of amphibious operations, special warfare, uh, you know, the whole what the joint force brings to the expeditionary fight is going to be uh, teed up in the April issue. So looking forward to that. That's a, that's a, that's a terrific point. And I think, you, you know, even short of the argument of, about whether or not we have enough amphibs, the idea that uh, amphibious ships could be used differently, we could rethink exactly how we employ them in a littoral competition with China. I think that question needs to be explored, and I don't think enough enough analysts really try and get to that, that point. That is, in this era of great power competition, we might really need to rethink exactly how we conduct our business. Because even short of the argument about how many amphibs do you need, what's, what's the size of the force, 
how we employ amphibs in relation to other surface combatants, whether the Marine Corps on those amphibious ships could be used differently. And I don't think we have enough of that kind of rich conversation. Yeah, I concur. Uh, and I'll just tell you, I was very surprised because, uh, you know, as I'm speaking, I'm like, hey, Navy loves the Marine Corps and uh, you're welcome for the amphibs that we're uh, providing. And it just surprised me. They're like, you know what? This is just another example of the Navy sort of slow rolling the Marine Corps. Um, I was just surprised by that sort of dynamic um, and that, that attitude. Um, but, you know, I get it. And, and I agree, uh, Doctor, that uh, that's a discussion that, uh, you know, ideally for our money would happen in the pages of proceedings. So uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have that conversation going forward. There, there's, a, there's another aspect of this, too. That is, if, if we're in a, a, a global competition or even a competition within the Asia-Pacific, and the Chinese are thinking about how to accomplish their strategic objectives short of necessarily having a conflict with the United States, um, amphibious ships are, in my opinion, the most uh, flexible type of force in which you can engage in that type of competition. So you put... A Marine Corps unit on it, you could put Army units on it, you could put law enforcement units on it, and so if the competition is short of conflict, which seems to be the case, a great power competition short of an actual slugging match in which we're shooting each other, um, amphibious ships with different types of units placed on it could be a very powerful tool in which we compete with, with China. And, and I, So I think we do need to rethink or at least think that about that issue as well. Uh, I got a question for you, Dr. Young. Um, it, it, it seems to me that the Chinese have this long-term strategy where they are willing to accept friction in the relationship between the United States and China or between the United States and its allies uh, and China. Uh, and and that they push incrementally. And we've seen this in the South China Sea. We see where uh, you know their uh, destroyer was willing to go very very close to the USS Decatur in October, where uh, they 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 push back incessantly whenever we uh, do a freedom of navigation op around one of these contested islands in the South China Sea, where they push their uh, fishing fleet forward with the Coast Guard behind it, you know, with the Navy over the horizon to harass the fishing vessels of the other uh, littoral nations of the South China Sea. And they push and push, and when they get a strong pushback, they retreat for a little bit. It's like a tactical retreat, but then they come back again and push hard. Um, so I'm just curious, your take on uh, what that what that strategy w will entail in the in the coming you know year or two? What what kinds of activity do you think we're going to see over the next year or two or five uh, out of China's naval forces, not just navy, but you know maritime forces uh, in the East China Sea and South China Sea? Well, I I think you've hit you've hit the pattern right on the nose. So I do think they keep pushing until there's a pushback. Um, they will keep. Uh, incrementally expanding out. And I guess the question among Sinologists and China experts is, where does it stop? Is it, is it an effort to essentially create some sort of defensive zone within China, and then at some point after they've, uh, they've got a military large enough, uh, push beyond that, or, uh, or is that not the case? And so amongst my fellow China analysts, we're debating that heavily. But you're, the pattern you've identified is absolutely correct. I mean, there are different, there are different words for that, salami slicing, gray zone operations, those are all clear patterns that we're all trying to figure out um, exactly what's going to happen next. And so I see, I see, I, I think perhaps island reclamation has reached its, 
its limit, that is a, the sand reclamation. Um, but nonetheless, I do see China consistently pressing, and I think what they're going to start seeing is more um, incremental action in, in places like the Indian Ocean, where they're, they're really pressing upon the Indians, one of our future potential partners. And so I think my prediction is this type of behavior starts expanding out of uh, East Asia and into the Indian Ocean, where um, we, need to, we need to really cooperate with, uh, with India and some of our South Asian friends. I'm so, curious, uh, I'll, at, at what, I'll just add. Go ahead, sorry, sir. Go ahead. Go ahead, sir. I was just going to add to what the, to, to what Chris had said. You know, talk about what China is doing. If you look at what amphibious forces are doing in the Pacific, you know, just working shoulder to shoulder with allies and partners. Everything from the Marine Rotational Force down in Darwin, Australia, to exercises, uh, you know, with our allies in the Pacific, with Japan with South Korea, with the Philippines, you know, of course, Thailand's an ally, you know, New Zealand. Operating shoulder to shoulder with allies and partners are the flexibility and the reach that amphibious forces give you. Something that the Commandant has had us focused on since he first became Commandant was one of his focus areas was integration with the Naval and the Joint Force is how amphibious forces um, – Navy and Marine forces, you know, can not only increase decision space, work shoulder to shoulder with allies and partners, but also set conditions for other members of the Joint Force to come in, increase partnership with Special Operations Command, really serve as an enabler of allied uh, participation, interoperability, and making other elements of the Joint Force like Special Operations Command more effective. That's a great point. So we have to wrap things up here. Uh, I, I do want to just sort of recap a little bit. So we've been talking with uh, Brigadier General William Bowers, the U.S. Marine Corps, and Dr. Christopher D. Young, both from the Marine Corps University. They've written an article in the November issue of Proceedings called China Has Learned the Value of Amphibious Operations. I'll just read the final paragraph of that article. Were the United States ever to relax its attention to retaining these vital strategic amphibious capabilities it could be forced to accept strategic outcomes counter to its national interests that could linger for dec decades, as did China back in 1949. So just a, a really great piece. I'll also highlight coming up in the December issue of Proceedings, which we are putting the finishing touches on today, uh, we have um, a condensed version of the incredible speech that uh, the Honorable Kevin Rudd, the former uh Prime Minister of Australia gave at the New China Challenge Conference here at the Naval Academy in October. Uh, it is called Can the U.S. and China Avoid War? Kevin Rudd was uh, both Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Australia, dealt closely with the Chinese at a very strategic level during his tenure and has written, or his speech was incredible. He allowed us to take it and condense it down a little bit. Uh, it'll be in the December issue of Proceedings. So for anyone who's interested in this peer competition, the China Challenge, uh, what the future uh, holds for us uh, in that realm, uh, you'll want to read that article in the, coming in the December issue of Proceedings. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. It's been great having you on the podcast, and we look forward to... Uh, uh, our continued close work with Marine Corps University and the Expeditionary Warfare School in, in 2019. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and thank you for what you do. 
Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps up uh, our pre-Thanksgiving episode of the podcast. Uh, Remember, folks, uh, be safe. Have a great Thanksgiving. And don't forget, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute.